dear congregation, boys and girls, did you, did you look forward to coming to God's house today? Did you look forward to come here to hear the word of God proclaimed? More importantly, did you desire to come here praying that you would meet Jesus here in his house of prayer? Because that is our extraordinary privilege. Week after week, this is where God meets with sinners. This is where Christ walks among us in the garments of his word. What a privileged people we are that we have the scriptures which infallibly direct us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior whose birth we have recently commemorated. Because it is that word, you see, it is that word given to us by God which infallibly directs us to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is God's desire and it's God's delight to use his word to lead us to his son. Oh, did you come here this morning with the desire expressed by David in Psalm 27 when he says so beautifully, one thing he says, one thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to behold his beauty. Oh, congregation, did you come here with that desire to behold his beauty? Was it your prayer, oh Lord, grant that this morning I may behold the beauty and the glory of thy well-beloved Son? Because that will ever be the reliable evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. His work is to glorify Christ and to draw us to him. And we will see that beautifully exemplified in the well-known history of the wise men who came from the East. And though we will focus on the entire passage, let me read again especially verses 9 through 11 of Matthew 2. Verses 9 through 11 of Matthew 2. There we read God's word in our text. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so with God's help, we will focus on these wise men as men of faith. We will see very clearly that God bestowed upon these men the gift of faith. First of all, we will see that they sought Christ by faith. Secondly, that they found Christ by faith. 
And thirdly, that they worship Christ by faith. When to the naked eye, they merely looked at an infant dwelling in a house with his parents. And so the wise men, they sought Christ, they found Christ, and they worshipped Christ. And so the question is, who were these men? It's a remarkable congregation that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to tell us next to nothing about these men. And there's a reason for that. And yet it's amazing when you read the commentaries how much speculation there is about who these men might have been. All the Holy Spirit tells us in this passage is that they were wise men, they were educated men, they belonged to the educational elite, and they came from somewhere in the East. And probably they were astrologers, not just studying uh, astronomics, but they, they, they astrology, and of course, that was very, very prevalent in those days. We think of uh, the time of Nebuchadnezzar. David or Daniel was the, one of the leaders of the wise men. And they would study the stars, and they would do so superstitiously. And so most likely, these men belonged to that category. Most likely, they came from either the region of Babylon, the current Iraq, or, or Arabia. Somewhere in that area, they came from. But it's really immaterial where exactly they came from. It's immaterial what their human credentials were. But what the Holy Spirit has seen fit to reveal to us is that these men left everything behind and made the long journey all the way to Jerusalem. Because as they proclaim when they come to Jerusalem, they explain why they came. Something remarkably had occurred while they were in the east, prompting them to come to Jerusalem. And let's not think for a moment that it was merely because their interest was aroused, that they came there uh, as, as scholars in a scholarly pursuit to learn more. It's very clear from the passage that the reason they made that journey is because there was an intense desire to discover who that king was, whose star they had seen in the east. And what we see in this history, so beautiful, is that not only did God reveal himself to the shepherds in the field, not only did he reveal himself to Simeon and Anna when they came to the temple, because this obviously happened after that, but we see right away, and of all places in the Gospel of Matthew, which was especially written to the Jewish people, we see that, that now God is, is drawing Gentiles, Gentiles to come and worship his Son. Because Christ came into the world to be the Savior of Jew and Gentile. He came to be the Savior of the world. God so loved the world 
a world of Jew and Gentile, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And so what was it that made them conclude that what they saw in the sky, this very unusual phenomenon, what was it that prompted them to make that journey? There may have been others who have seen this. Could it be that they were familiar with the prophecies of Daniel and his prediction about the birth of a great king that would come at God's appointed time? Were they perhaps familiar with what Balaam had said, that wicked man whose services were secured by Balak, who wanted them, who wanted him to curse the people of Israel? and yet who was moved by the spirit of prophecy to utter remarkable things. In Numbers 24, verse 17, when again Balaam is in a trance, he said, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. Then these words, there shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. It's very well possible. It's also possible that through the presence of Jews who lived abroad, which already was happening then as well, that they had learned something about the God of Israel, that they had learned something about Israel's expectation of the coming of the Messiah in the fullness of time. There could have been all kinds of circumstances. But undoubtedly, there were many other so-called wise men learned men like themselves who may have been acquainted with the same information and yet they did not make the journey. That's why I believe, congregation, there is only one real explanation for their coming. And the explanation is that God had sovereignly delivered them from the wretched service of Satan that God had drawn them out of that world of astrology. That it was a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 60 verse 3. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. And so what was it? What was this star? Again, a lot of speculation about what that star might have been, congregation. But again, fruitless speculation. I think it's crystal clear from this passage that this was a very unusual and supernatural phenomenon. Not somehow an arrangement of planets or certain comets. This was a supernatural phenomenon. And I tend to agree with those commentators who are suggesting this was a display of the Shekinah glory of God. That Shekinah glory that enveloped the shepherds when they were in the field. One commentator actually suggests that that display of divine glory was so intense in the middle of the night, that glory that surrounded the shepherds, and when the angels sang in the fields of Ephrata, that they may have seen that all the way back east where they dwelt. Possible. But I like the idea 
that this was a supernatural display. This was a supernatural phenomenon used by God to bring these men to Bethlehem again. The likelihood that they would have arrived in Bethlehem was also about zero. As a matter of fact, when they left, when they left their country in the east, they didn't even know about Bethlehem. They had no idea what had happened in Bethlehem of Judea. And last week when Pastor Kelderman preached about this whole chapter, he talked about the amazing wheels of providence that were turning, which brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem in Judea, to the house of bread as the place ordained by God where the bread of life would come into the world. And these men, when they left their home country, they did not even know about Bethlehem. But one thing they were certain of, that what they had seen was very unusual and was very extraordinary. And I would even venture to say that others may have seen it, but I would venture to say that they recognized by supernatural divine revelation that this was not something that could be explained even by them, in light of their, of their scholarly know-how. This was extraordinary. It's even possible, as one commentator suggests, and I, I like that idea, that God already had revealed himself to them by dreams, because in verse 12, when God warns them in a dream, they recognize the voice of God. It would appear that it was not the first time that God had revealed himself to them. The point I'm trying to make is that their coming, their leaving their home country and, 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 get, and entering on this arduous and dangerous journey to come all the way to Jerusalem to pursue something that no one else would have pursued. Perhaps there were colleagues who said to them, are you out of your mind? Are you going to make that journey just because you happen to see that display in the sky? And yet these men, they were determined to make that journey. And so I think when we look at verse 2, I think we have some credible uh, evidence there that God already revealed himself to these men. Look at what they say in verse 2. There, there are really five remarkable things that verse 2 tells us when they arrive in Jerusalem. And then they say, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. First of all, for them, the birth of this king was a fact. They said, Where is he? Secondly, they understood the identity of this king. Where is born the king of the Jews? Thirdly, when they say we have seen not just a star, it says we have seen his star in the east. How would they have known to make that connection between that phenomenon in the sky, that brilliant phenomenon in the sky, and the king of the Jews, except by revelation. Fourthly, 
the very reason why they came. Namely, they came to worship him. Now, some commentators would explain that, that they merely wanted to show their respect. But I, I disagree with that because the word worship that is used in verse 2 is the same that is again used in verse 11. And there are three different words in Greek that can be translated as to worship. This is the one that specifically is related to the worship of God. And obviously, and number five, they came with an intense desire to see that king. And so his birth was an established fact to them. They understood his identity as the king of the Jews. They connected the star to him. They came to worship him. And they had a great desire to see him. And so what is the important lesson that we have to learn from all of this? The important lesson is this, that there is much about these men we do not know. And we don't have to speculate. We are forbidden to speculate by the silence of Scripture. But what is very important for us to recognize today is whatever happened there, however God dealt with them, however God stirred them up, they came with a desire to find Christ. A congregation, that's what these men have in common with every single believer throughout all the ages. And so we don't know how it all began. And we don't know what that beginning was. Nor is it important for you or me to be able to explain how it all began with me. Often we can be mistaken about that. It's not, it's, the, the, the question is not how this all did started, but what is significant, what did it result in? It resulted in an intense desire to see this king. There was this intense desire to find this Christ. There was this attraction, this yearning in their soul to find the Lord Jesus Christ. A congregation, that's the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. His work always is, no matter how He leads us, how He directs us, His work always is to draw us to Christ and to cause us to find Christ. In His own sovereign way, He makes room for this Christ in our hearts and our souls. And that's why the conversion, of counts, the conversion accounts in Scripture are relatively few. And they're relatively simple. And so Abraham's way was very different from his grandson Jacob. David's way in which David was led differed greatly from how Manasseh was led. The way Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was converted, differed dramatically from how God led Timothy. The way the Lord worked in Lydia differed dramatically from what he, how he dealt with the jailer. But congregation, the point is not how does it begin, but the point is where does it bring us? So again, what we see in the lives of these men 
is the confirmation of what Jesus so powerfully stated in John 6, verse 45, a text that you will often hear me repeat, that every man that has heard and learned of the Father cometh unto me. And so Jesus is saying, what is the evidence that you have been taught by my Father? The evidence of divine instruction, no matter how God is pleased to do it, the evidence of divine instruction is our coming to Christ. It's coming to Christ over and over again, which is the only reliable evidence of the work of grace in the soul of a man. Where that's lacking, everything is lacking. And that's why it's not how many tears we shed. It's not how deep our knowledge of our misery is, which proves that our faith is genuine. But where does it bring us? And that's the point of this story. And that's why the Holy Spirit has not revealed to us how it all began. But what he does reveal to us is where it brought these men. And he re so, in that sense, the story of the wise men reflects the way in which God leads all of his children. He will so work in our hearts, he will so work in our souls, that our souls will be irresistibly attracted to the Lord Jesus Christ. That the deep yearning of our soul becomes to find him and to know him. That was the desire of these men. And so it was the Holy Spirit who was at work in drawing these men away from their environment and bringing them all the way to Jerusalem. And so what made these wise men, wise men, is not their education, but they were wise men because they were seekers after Jesus. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, that the scriptures are given to us to make us wise unto salvation. And as we will see in a moment, how in God's amazing ways, not only does he use whatever he used to bring them to Jerusalem, but ultimately he uses his word to lead them to Christ. Because what happens? They come to Jerusalem. And we read that when King Herod heard of these things, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. So why was Jerusalem troubled? Because they were troubled about the fact that Herod was troubled. Herod was an extremely wicked man who had ruthlessly killed his wife and two of his sons and many others who, whom he viewed as a threat. A man who did not hesitate to send the soldiers to Bethlehem and to slaughter every child two years and younger. That was Herod. And so when the people heard these things, they were very concerned what Herod might do in one of his fits of rage. A man who viewed this as a, as a threat to his throne. There are also some commentators who suggest that this may have been a considerable number of people who came. 
This whole idea that there were three men is simply, that's a fairy tale, that's fiction. Some actually, some commentators suggest that because of who they were, they came with a, a whole entourage so that their entrance into Jerusalem became quickly known. But now see God's overruling providence. The overruling providence in first bringing them to Jerusalem. And I like again what one commentator said. He said, isn't that amazing that God is actually using those wise men, those converted astrologers whom he was drawing with the cords of his love to his son. He used them as evangelists to tell Jerusalem that Christ had been born. Of all things, Jerusalem, where the temple was. So what does Herod do? He gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together. And so probably he made sure he invited all of the, the, the theological elite of Jerusalem. He was thoroughly familiar with the Jewish people. And he knew if I'm going to get an answer as to where that king of the Jews is to be born, I need to talk to the, the, the chief priests and scribes. And it says, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Notice that this enemy, this man who was so hostile to God, he made the connection. He made the connection. He had heard about the coming of the Messiah, the prophecies. He knew that they were expecting the Messiah to come. And so he is the one who uses the name of Christ. He demanded of them where the Messiah should be born. And then remarkably, these scribes do not hesitate for one moment. After all, they were the students of Scripture. And they instantly reply and quote Micah 5 verse 2. And here we have a, probably from the Septuagint, a little bit different than the language of Micah 5 verse 2, but the thrust of it is the same. For thus it is written by the prophets, they said unto Herod, And thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor or a shepherd that shall rule my people Israel. But the sad part of it is, congregation, that even though they knew the Scriptures, they did not really know the God of the Scriptures. They were men who had an intellectual knowledge of the Scripture, but that word did absolutely nothing to them. You would think that the fact that a delegation came all the way from the East to find where the Messiah was born, and then by quoting this passage, that they themselves would incline and say, we will go with you, and we will show you the way, and we will lead you to Bethlehem. But it left them absolutely cold, absolutely cold. But the wonderful thing is that God is overruling all of this. All this is working together to good for, for their good. Because God uses these men to give those wise men what they need. They needed the testimony of the Scriptures in order to find the newborn king in Bethlehem. Without this scriptural direction, without the Word of God, they would not have found him. 
And so God sovereignly brings them in contact with his written word. Out east they did not have his word. And so God used other means to deal with them and to instruct them. We still hear stories about the Middle East today that especially among Muslims who do not have the word of God in their possession that God appears to use dreams for his initial revelation of himself, but his ultimate goal is to bring us in contact with his And so here we see again a truth that is so essential, that God either will bring his word to the sinner, or he will bring the sinner to his word, but he brings the two together. And these men needed the scriptures to bring them to the exact location where the Messiah had been born. And then when Herod finds this out, he calls them for a private meeting. And he wants to know when, the ta- when that star appeared. Because Herod, this evil king, was doing the math, of course, in his mind. Because his evil plan was to eliminate this child. He eliminated everybody that was in his way. And he wanted to know how old this child would probably be. The very fact that he commanded all children two years and younger to be killed probably indicates that the babe Jesus was now a young child. That's why, of course, we're told that Joseph and Mary are now living in a house in Bethlehem. So exactly how old Jesus would have been, we do not know, but somewhere within that range. And Herod wanted to make sure that this child would not escape. And so as a result of this remarkable encounter with the scribes and Pharisees and meeting with this wicked King Herod, these men are are brought in contact with the precious Word of God. And it is that word that directs them. It is that word that ultimately leads them to Christ. And again, then we see the exact parallel between these men and between all believers. Though our circumstances may differ greatly in the way God has led us, but he always brings us to his word. He always uses his word to bring us to the living word, to lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why, boys and girls, I began by asking you the question, were you excited about coming here this morning? Were you longing to come here? Because the beautiful thing is, we don't need some extraordinary phenomenon, light in the sky, to lead us to Christ. You and I, we've had the Scriptures, the Word of God, from the day we were born. And it is that Word that God uses to lead us to Christ. So that again we see the the circumstances of of the work of God in the life of these men is unique, but the fundamental components of it are the same. That those who were yearning to find Christ, God ministers to them in a most remarkable way by bringing them in contact with his word because it is through that word alone that they actually found him. 
It is that word which directed him to Bethlehem. And so they leave. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them. Corrugation. What an amazing thing. What a beautiful, beautiful illustration. That when God begins a good work, he will finish it. That when God is at work in the sinner, drawing a sinner to his son, God by his spirit will not rest until he leads us to his son. It was God's desire to bring these men to his only begotten son. And that's the reason why God gives us his word today. That's why God's word is proclaimed to us. It is the word of a God who gave his word in order that we might know his beloved son. It is God's good pleasure that through his word, sinners would be drawn to his son, as was true also for these men. And again, that's why we understand what Peter says, and that's what is important for us, right? These men, they needed some remarkable physical affirmation. But Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well to take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. And so how remarkably... God now rewards the faith of these men. How remarkably he now, in the way of his providence, reassures them that what they saw back east was very real indeed. And what they saw back east, they now see again. And of course, what we're told here is that that star moved now, normally we can't see the stars move. And then again, it just emphasizes that it may have appeared like a star, but it had a very unique quality. It actually physically moved and directed them with precision to where this child could be found. And then we read that when they saw this star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. So, boys and girls, let me ask you something. Why do you think they were so very, very happy when they saw that same star again? Because most likely, when they had seen that remarkable illumination, this remarkable phenomenon prompting them to leave, they probably had not seen that all the way to Jerusalem. They simply came because of what they had seen. But now they see it again. And they recognize it. They recognize that same star. But why were they so exceedingly glad? And the, the language in Greek is very, very strong. Because seeing that star encouraged them that they were right. It encouraged them that they had not made their journey in vain. It encouraged them. It was a confirmation that they would find the one for whom they were looking. 
that they would find the King of Israel. They would find the Christ. They would find the Messiah. That's why they came. That's what they longed for. That's what drew them. That's why their hearts were filled with exceeding great joy. I ask you, congregation, can you relate to that? Can you relate to that experientially? Because again, that is the experience of all of God's children. All of God's children is when God, by renewal, through His Word, redirects our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. But even through the sacraments, He gives the, the visible tokens of His favor that fills the heart of a seeker after Christ with exceeding great joy. Because this meant that they were going to find the one whom they are looking for. And there's nothing sweeter to a believer than to have a, a fresh revelation of Christ, a fresh revelation of the King in His beauty, a fresh affirmation through word and sacrament that so encourages our soul to take refuge to Him over and over again. Oh, that, that joy, that exceeding great joy of these men was the joy of a heart that longs for Christ. The joy of a heart that cannot be satisfied except with Christ. Exceeding great joy. Now, it doesn't mean that every believer experienced that as dramatically and as intensely as these men did. The congregation... If you know nothing of that exceeding joy that fills your soul, the Spirit of God opens your eyes for this blessed King and for His beauty. When God unveils to you in the gospel that everything you need as a wretched, guilty soul is to be found in this Christ. When the Spirit of God unveils to you that this Christ exactly suits your needs that he is the altogether lovely one and the chiefest among 10,000. If you know nothing of that joy, then you probably don't know this Christ. This, this becomes an experiential reality. Congregation, I can assure you that once you taste that joy, you will never be able to be satisfied again. What is the mark of a believer, a true believer, is that we long for a fresh affirmation. We long, our desire is to behold Him again. Our desire is to know more of Him. Oh, to behold His beauty is what satisfies the soul of the believer. And so what, what's so beautiful here too, and God still works that way, is that when they saw that star again, now leading them to Bethlehem, it was a reaffirmation of what they had experienced back home. And sometimes God's children can be so assaulted by the prince of darkness when we lose sight of Christ. Is my experience real? 
Is what I have experienced, is that the work of the Holy Spirit, or is it just my imagination? And how encouraging it then can be when God graciously, through His Word and Spirit, gives me a fresh affirmation of His love and of His favor in our soul. Oh, that fills us with exceeding great joy. And so here we see that seekers after Jesus will always become finders of Jesus. That's what happened here. They sought him and they found him. And then they, of course, they worship him. Verse 11, when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. Isn't that remarkable? The moment they open the door, it's not Mary they focus on. It's not Joseph. Joseph is not even mentioned here. But the first thing they do, when they see that child, who looked just like an ordinary child, an ordinary toddler probably, but when they saw him, oh, they knew this is him. Because this is where the star stopped. It stopped above that house. They could not be mistaken. This was him. And the first thing they do is they fell down and they worship him. That's why I call them men of faith. Because anybody else would have seen nothing special in that child. Just an ordinary child. But by faith they saw who he was. By faith, they saw his beauty. The natural man sees no beauty in him. Those scribes and Pharisees were totally disinterested in this Messiah. They were spiritually dead, spiritually cold. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, we read the condition of all men by nature, that we see no form nor comeliness in him. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty in that we desire him. And the very fact that these men immediately fall to the ground, that they immediately worship this child, means that their eyes were, they were supernaturally enlightened by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, whose work it always is to lead us to Christ. The Spirit of Christ who enables us to behold the unspeakable beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, they looked at that child with the eyes of faith. And they fall down. And they worship him. I've said this before. Congregation. This is always an important component of every exercise of faith. Every exercise of faith results in worship. Our whole life the Spirit is at work time and again for us to seek Jesus where he is to be found. Time and again, he enables us to find him. And every time we find him, we cannot but worship him. And so the pattern of the Heidelberg Catechism repeats itself over and over again in the life of God's children. Misery, deliverance, gratitude. These men came 
Because there was a real need in their soul. And they found by God's grace what they were looking for. And when they found him, they could not but worship him. And again, I would say that this is the mark of true experience. We cannot claim to know Christ experientially if we have never worshipped him. Because when he becomes real to us experientially, when the Spirit of God enables us to behold his beauty and his loveliness, how can we not but worship that Christ? How can we not echo the words of the bride when she said about her Solomon, this, oh, you want to know who my beloved is? I will tell you my beloved is. He is the chiefest among 10,000. He is white and he is ruddy and he is altogether lovely. He was altogether lovely to these men. Oh, how lovely was that child. And they fell down. And they worshipped him. Oh, congregation. Are you jealous of these men? Boys and girls, do you wish you could have been there at that moment? Do you know the beauty of this child? Do you know the beauty of this Christ? Has this Christ become altogether lovely to your soul? Is that the deepest yearning and desire of your soul to, to know more of him, to see more of him? That's the evidence of the saving grace of God. That's why the only reliable evidence of the new birth is faith in Christ. The new birth will always culminate in faith in Christ. It's not how many tears we shed. It's not how deep our experiences were. It's not how long. If that doesn't bring us to Christ, it's not the, it's not the saving work of the Holy Spirit. But his work, and in some, I guess, he, he, the Spirit dealt differently with Lydia than he did with the jailer. But it all brings us to the same place. It brings us to the blessed feet of this precious child, this precious king. They, they worshipped him. They worshipped him in the midst of his deep humiliation. No doubt this was a very simple, humble abode. Joseph and Mary were poor people. There was nothing attractive to that dwelling. There was nothing attractive to be seen. And yet, with the eyes of faith, they beheld his divine glory that filled that simple house. Oh, the presence of that child transformed that house into a Bethel. That simple house was the house of God. The desire of all nations had come. It says, when he shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. That little house was filled with the glory of Emmanuel. That little house where they came and where they worshipped the newborn king 
was like a gate of heaven. Oh, they worshipped him. The crowning piece of the work of the Holy Spirit. What an encouragement it must have been to Mary. First the shepherds came and worshipped her child. And now these Gentiles come from afar and they worship her son. What an encouragement that must have been. And then they honor him. They show him. They demonstrate by their actions that they honored him as king. It says that when they had opened the treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We don't, have, we don't have to allegorize this, as some do. That simply means this, these were the gifts they carried with them. After all, they came to render their homage to a king. So they brought presents that were fit for a king. And so they gave gold and myrrh and incense to demonstrate that they honored this child as their king. And providentially, it provided Joseph and Mary with the means they needed to survive in Egypt when they had to flee. That's how we know that this happened after the presentation of Christ in the temple when Simeon and Levi, because Joseph and Mary were so poor they had to bring the sacrifice of the poor. They could not afford a regular sacrifice. So if they would have had these means at their disposal, they would have been able to bring the normal sacrifice at the presentation of Christ. But here God sovereignly gives them the means they would need to be able to live in Egypt until their journey would come back. And so, congregation, we have considered these wise men, made wise unto salvation, men of faith. They sought Christ, they found Christ, and they worshipped Christ. A picture of all those of whom Paul writes in Ephesians 6, all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Is that the pattern of your and my life? Seeking Jesus, finding Jesus, and worshiping Jesus. That's the pattern of the saving work of the Holy Spirit. That's the powerful lesson of this story. That when the Spirit works savingly, even if you live in Arabia or Persia, He will not cease until He brings us to Christ. That is the litmus test of whether our religion is real. Unto you, therefore, that believe, he is precious. So I ask you, what do you think of this child?